Everything must be done by turns. No activity here beneath the heavens, but has its allotted time for beginning and coming to an end. Men are born only to die, plant trees only to displant them. Now we take life, now we save it. Now we are destroying, now building. Weep first, then laugh. Mourn we and dance. The stones we have scattered we must bring together anew. Court we first, and then shun the embrace. Today's gain, tomorrow's loss, what once we treasured soon thrown away. The garment rent, the garment mended, silence kept and silence ended, love alternating with hatred, war with peace. This beautiful and thought-provoking translation by Ronald Knox of the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us tonight of a powerful fact, that even the Blessed Virgin, because she was a child of Adam and Eve, had her days on this earth numbered, just like we do. What was it like for Mary to grow old? We always tend to think of her as eternally youthful, and we can't even bear to think of her as anything but the most beautiful woman to ever have lived. Did she get gray around the temples? And did crow's feet threaten those eyes that had seen so much? Did she get a lot of visitors as the years went on, eager to know of why she said yes as a young girl to a plan announced by an angel? Was she a storyteller who captured the imagination and attention of numerous throngs, or was she enveloped in a cocoon of solitude and silence, thinking of all she had seen and heard in her heart, far from the maddening crowd. What did she think as she saw the end of her earthly life approach? Did the angel of death even come near the Immaculate Conception, whose faithfulness would spell his own demise? Or did he lurk about stupidly trying to tempt the sinless one? Did Mary hear those sweet words of her divine Son, be not afraid? Or did she hear the temptations of the evil one and quietly turn away from them, as she had always done, knowing that the kingdom of God was within her, an inheritance that could never be taken away from her? Did she want to be alone? or with those that were a part of her journey. Tradition holds that by a miracle, all of the apostles were flown from the ends of the earth to her bedside. I don't know, maybe they anticipated the joys of air travel by a couple of thousand years, or maybe they knew what was coming, 
or they thought they did, and no one wanted to miss being there. Of course, there would always be Thomas, poor doubting Thomas, late as usual. But then again, India is a long way from Jerusalem, even for miracles. In my mind's eye, I can see that small group of people crammed into a tiny room with no air and no light, because who could bear the thought of breathing and seeing without such beauty nearby? Mary on a bed that was to be her funeral catafalque. As twilight approached, did they sing the same Vespers psalms that we sing on this day? Letatus sum in hisque dicta sunt mici, in domo domini ibimus. Welcome sound when I heard them saying, we will go into God's house. Laudate pueri dominum, laudate nomen domini, qui habitare facit stedilem in domo, matrem filiorum letantem. Praise the Lord, you that are his servants. Praise the name of the Lord together. He gives the barren woman a home to dwell in, a mother rejoicing in her children. St. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who had taken care of Mary since Calvary, who had lived with her in Ephesus in a small house and in the holy city, surrounded by such memories. Did he fight back tears as he lay his head on the breast of the virgin, just as he did her son on the night of the Last Supper? Were candles burning far into the night, their wax consuming itself as humanity unredeemed passed away in a flood of fire? St. Mary Magdalene, was she there? Did she cling to Mary as she had to Jesus, feeling that loss was about to happen all over again? What does grief look like? When the mother of life is closing her eyes and faith isn't enough to tell you that she will live again on the last day because the author of life had promised it. No vigil, no wake, no funeral in the history of mankind has ever been like that of Mary. Did St. Peter the Pope of Rome, remembering his betrayal of her only son, the firstborn of the Father. Battle against despair in that moment, knowing the woman he caused so much sorrow for was to experience her last sadness on this earth. Put yourself next to the bier upon which the body of the woman who changed the world was going from flesh to tones of gray. What is in your heart? 
your mind, and your soul as you mourn the mother of us all. It was right that she who had kept her virginity unimpaired through the process of giving birth should have kept her body without decay through death. It was right that she who had given her Creator as a child a place at her breast should be given a place in the dwelling place of her God. It was right that the bride espoused by the Father should dwell in the heavenly bridal chamber. It was right that she who had gazed on her Son on the cross, her heart pierced at that moment by the sword of sorrow that she had escaped at His birth, should now gaze on Him seated with His Father. It was right that the mother of God should possess what belongs to her son and be honored by every creature as God's mother and handmaid. St. John Damascene preached those words in the seventh century after his father, Sarjun ibn Mansur, had given the keys to the Damascus of St. Paul to Khalid ibn al-Walid, who conquered the Christian city and began its process of assimilation to Islam. St. John Damascene knew that the Muslim conquerors venerated Mary as a prophet and the mother of the Messiah who would come back at the end of time to judge the living and the dead. He knew that some Islamic scholars asserted that Mary was assumed into heaven, body, and soul at the end of her earthly life. This ancient teaching of the Christian church was shared even by those outside of her. And it would only be the much later heresies of Protestantism and modernism that would dare question such an historical event. And that historical event is exactly what happened. Precisely because of the reasons that John Damascene so eloquently explained, just when everything seemed lost, the grace of God intervened in a marvelous way. Something happened that the apostles knew from the Bible had happened before. The time had come when the Lord would have Elias carried up by a whirlwind into heaven. They were still going on and talking as they went, when all at once between them a flaming chariot appeared, drawn by flaming horses, and Elias went up in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha watched it, crying out, but now he had sight of him no longer. Then he took up the mantle of Elias that had fallen from him. With this mantle that had fallen from Elias, he struck the waters again, and they parted for Elias to cross over. You know, the ancient sources don't tell us whether Mary breathed her last, was buried, and was then raised on the third day, just like her son, or whether just at the final moment she was assumed into heaven, body, and soul like Elias by chariot racing to eternity. That is why the Eastern Fathers call this event the Dormition, the falling asleep of Our Lady, 
and Western theologians call it the Assumption, as the flesh of the new Eve and the spirit of the Immaculate Conception assumed its new state of glory. The silence we have to endure on this part is agonizing for those of us who really just want to know how it all happened. But I think there are some things in space and time that just can't ever be described by any words at all. So silence is the best way to worship at the altar of the God who brought about this mystery. As the Blessed Virgin ascended into heaven, so the ancient story goes, the girdle that adorned her dress she unfastened and dropped to Thomas. He who had doubted the resurrection because he had eyes that could not then see had the consolation of one of the most precious relics in Christendom. A sign in the heavens indeed, and one that left its traces upon the earth, even to the ends of the known world. A world known by Mary and blessed by tangible signs of her presence and her fullness of grace by visions seen, by wonders worked, and by a mother's love felt. We may look at the brown scapular as our own version of the relic of the girdle. As Elias gave to Elisha his cloak that worked the miracle of passing over the waters of the Jordan, Mary gives her cloak to cover our shoulders to remind us that the Lord who is baptized in the Jordan opens paradise to us when we call on Him with faith. But there is a sense in which that cloak, that scapular, that girdle is the assumption itself. And now in heaven a great portent appeared, a woman that wore the sun for her mantle with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars about her head. The vesperal darkness of night, of the death and decay of man, it's over, it's done. Our Lady has brought light into that abyss and conquered it, making the little lights of the night her decor and diadem. And where she has gone, we are invited to follow. She is that sign for us in the heavens which points to those comfortable and awesome words. He who gives this warning says, indeed, I am coming soon. Be it so then, come, Lord Jesus.